0: And we pray the same thing for our brothers and sisters over at Trinity in in Portland. We, We pray for their pastor, Thomas. Be with him, Lord. I pray that your spirit would rest with him so that he might preach your word boldly as he ought to and plainly so that people may hear and receive the word of truth. And I pray that the people there would receive the word with joy and thanksgiving. And Lord, we also lift up our, our missionaries, Evan and Christy, Lord. Would you be with them and strengthen them? I pray that you would bless the work of their hands. And I pray that as they, they minister and train others, I pray that, that many disciples would be made through them and that your gospel would go forth with power and that it would bear much fruit in Asia and in Alaska and throughout the world. And so, Lord, would you do these things by the work of your Spirit We are helpless to accomplish anything apart from you. So be with us, we ask, in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I am an insatiably curious person, and uh, that's a bad thing, especially for people who are closest to me. I'm pretty sure that my wife asked for patience from the Lord at one point, and his response to that was giving her me. Uh, it seems that everything that, that gets presented my way is responded with four or five questions at the very least. And so if we're having dinner, I have to know what it is and, and what all's in it or about the member meeting happening later. I'm curious what all's going to go on in that meeting. Perhaps you are too. I know something about what's going to happen, but... Uh, Maybe what we're thinking about even now is, what are we gonna have for lunch after church is over? So it's good to ask questions, but there is a question that is most important than any other question that we could ever ask, and that is this question, who is Jesus? And this is a question that every single one of us must ask, and not only that, this is a question that every single one of us must answer. To not answer it is to in essence, give it an answer. That is to ignore who Jesus is. And depending on who you ask, there's a variety of answers that we may hear. But, but just to broadly categorize the kind of answers you might see, I've got four ideas of what people might say. Some may see that, say that Jesus is a myth. Others would say that he is a madman. Others might say that he's a moral teacher and Others still, and I hope the majority of us and every single one of us, even by the end of today, will say that he is the Messiah. So let's just think about this for just a little bit. Who is Jesus? Well, if you think he's a myth, because often people think that he is, that he's some some person who's just been made up, well, just look at history. Our calendars are dated the way they are because Jesus was born 2,000 years ago. Even outside of the scriptures, there are historical accounts by a man named Josephus that write of Jesus of Nazareth. So if you want to say he's a myth, well, that's just not plausible. And furthermore, if you want to say that the resurrection is a myth and that this is just something that, that his disciples came up with on their own, well, once again, these men died for Jesus Christ. Every single one of them, minus one, and the one that didn't die, well, he was exiled to an island to die alone because of his faith in Jesus Christ. So I don't think saying that Jesus is a myth and the gospel is made up is a plausible answer. And for those who might want to say, well, he, he is real, but he's just a moral teacher. Well, C.S. Lewis helps us. C.S. Lewis put it this way. For those who want to say that he's just a moral teacher, C.S. Lewis said, a man who is merely a man... And said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or he'd be the devil of hell. You must make the choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. So, for those who want to say Jesus is just a moral teacher so we can put his, his words and teachings on a mug, well, consider this. Jesus said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Let's consider for for just a moment what that means. If there is a, a moral teacher who's saying these kinds of things about himself, he's a lunatic. Ladies, if you date a guy, especially those who are not married, but if you date a guy who says, yeah, if you love anyone more than me, then I don't wanna, you should break up with the guy. He's a madman. And Jesus doesn't even stop there. He continues. He says, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my name's sake will find it. The only person who can make such an audacious claim is God. And if anyone else says something like this, then, well, he is no moral teacher at all. But some would say, well, Jesus, he never claimed to be God. God if that's what you think, well, then you're wrong. Recall the scene in the gospels when the friends of the paralytic lowered their friend into the roof so that he might be healed by Jesus. Picking up in Mark 2, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So if we don't think that Jesus had the claim that he is God, well, these scribes rightly perceived what Jesus was saying when he said, your sins are forgiven. You see, as Christians, we're called to forgive those who sin against us, but we cannot forgive the sins of those who sin against us. We forgive our debtors, but the debt alone can only be forgiven by God. So, understand the audacity of what Paul says in this prayer that we've been going through in verses 13 and 14. He, the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And if you're a curious person like I am, you're going to ask, who is this Son? who has the power and the authority to redeem and forgive sins? And Paul, he answers that question. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, invisible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Paul's prayer launches right into the heart of this letter. Some think he's quoting here an early hymn, regardless of what what it is. What Paul is doing here is beginning his argument to refute the heresy that is going on and spreading among the Colossian church. And the best attack against heresy is not just pointing out all the flaws of their thinking. The best attack against heresy is a knowledge of the truth. The very same knowledge that Paul has been praying that they would receive that they would be filled with this knowledge. So what kind of heresies were going on among them? We get a a glimpse of what they were teaching. Colossians 2.18, he said, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. So understand what's happening in the Colossian church. They weren't necessarily denying Jesus Christ from what we can tell, But what is happening is Jesus is being diminished, being compared to the likeness of other spirits, angels. These teachers were coming in, and Jesus, sure, he may have been prominent as one who was to be worshiped, but he was not preeminent as the one alone who was worthy of all praise and all glory. And while the worship of angels might not be something we're tempted with today, Every single one of us is tempted to diminish Jesus of his importance. We might not deny him, but he is not supreme. He might be important, but he is not preeminent. Because we're too busy with things like fun, too concerned about finances, and we love our family so much so for a lot of us, though we wouldn't say it, functionally, Jesus is no more than a moral teacher, but he is not who Paul says he is here, that he is God. So we're gonna be going through this passage over the next month. And today we're just gonna focus on the first half of verse 15. But let me summarize this entire passage like this. Christ... The preeminent one is God, creator, and reconciler. So today what we're gonna focus on is just this first piece. He is God. Paul put it this way. He, that's Christ, is the image of the invisible God. And as we look at this, there's two questions I want us to consider to try to understand what Paul is saying here first question I want us to consider is this. What is meant by the invisible God? That is, in what sense is God invisible? What does this mean? And then the second, we'll get to it later, is what is meant by Jesus being the image of the invisible God? And so let's consider the first question. What is meant by God being invisible I can remember where I was sitting in Bible college when I first learned that God does not have eyes to see like in the way that we have eyes and a nose to breathe like he's described in Exodus as he, his, his, his breath piles up the water. I remember when all of a sudden I, I, I always read and heard that his arm is outstretched to save and that he has a righteous right hand. And so I was blown away when I learned for the first time that God is not like me in the sense that I thought he was. I thought he had a face like me. But what we see here is God is is not seen by man because he is invisible. We cannot see God. We see in John 4 because God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Understand what that means. God is not contained by a building. His presence isn't just here in this church, but it is here with God's people and also in every other church that is gathered together in his name. He is spirit. No one has seen God, we see in John 1. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. And furthermore, we see this. The scriptures teach explicitly that no one can see God and live. Sure, he shows up in theophanies like a burning bush, but when you see that language used in the burning bush, it says that it's an angel of the Lord, and then God speaks. And so what's going on? Exodus 33. Moses, he wants to see God, and so he says, please show me your glory. And then he said, God, that is, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I shall mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. This is why in the next book right after this, after Exodus comes Leviticus and in Leviticus, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abite, who go into the presence of God in an unworthy manner, and they are struck dead on the scene. This is why Isaiah and his vision, is, it goes like this. Isaiah 6.1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Picture this, if you will. Isaiah is in the temple where God's presence dwells, the very same place where Nadab and Abi, who died. And what he sees is God, high and lifted up, perhaps even beyond what he could see. But what he did see was this the train of his robe filling the temple. What this means is like, if you've ever seen a bride with a long train that follows behind her dress, this is just the edges of his garment that are filling the temple. This is the the part of, of the garment that the Jews would have been, that would have been unclean, like their feet, because it would have dragged on the ground in the dirt. This would have been the part of us that would be unholy. And yet what goes on in this scene? The angelic beings, the seraphim, they cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so... What does Isaiah's response to this? He says, woe was me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. That is to say, he only saw the train of his robe, and even still, that holiness was too much for him to see and live. No man has seen God, the invisible God, but though he is visible, God has revealed himself to us, but not through images. You'll remember Exodus 20, one of the commands that he's given us is to not make the carved image of any likeness, of anything in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or in the water or under the earth. You shall not bow to them and serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And so when Israel made that golden calf and said, this is your God, oh, that is that is horrible. For God is invisible. He is a spirit and not a calf. He is a spirit and not any man made thing. Calvin, on the subject, he said everything that would set itself off as a representation of God that is set apart from Christ will be an idol. That includes the pictures of Jesus. He is not made by man neither is his temple and the house in which he would inhabit. He, does not, he is not contained by these things. And yet he has revealed himself not through images, but in part through creation. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. And I want to point out, it does not say that they display the glory of God. If you think it displays the glory of God, soon you'll start worshiping the sun. No, but the heavens said they are speaking, declaring, proclaiming the glory of God. And any keen reader of the Bible will know also that when it comes to God's image, there is only one thing that is said to have borne the image of God that is in the Old Testament, and that is man. And so even in some way, people bear this image, and they're God's representatives in the world, but... Genesis three talks about something that goes terribly wrong in that. When Adam and Eve, they sinned and you and I, when we sin, the image of God is broken even in us. You see, we need something far better in order for us to know God. And so what he's given us is his word. You'll remember Exodus 33, what we just read earlier when Moses asked the Lord to show him his glory And in Exodus 34, we see what the Lord does in showing his glory. And it's not through an image, but it is through, once again, proclamation. The Lord descended in the clouds and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God, he has revealed himself to us in his word. Here, clearly his glory and his attributes are seen, but all over the place throughout his word, you can see God's attributes displayed. But this is a, A difficult relationship to be sure, an invisible God to whom there is no access to, limited access to, I should say. Anyone who's ever been in a long-distance relationship knows this, whether it even be in a dating relationship, whether it be a spouse that's overseas or gone, whether it be a kid that's even gone for the weekend. I, I, I don't like it when my kids are gone for more than a day because... It's not the same. I can call them and I can FaceTime them and I can see them, but it's not the same as being with them. And so this this relationship with God who is invisible and certainly not with them in the sense that we have him today, it's difficult because their way of accessing him was through a tabernacle and later on the temple and, and God's presence though with them was still separated from them through curtains and walls. And yet we see something fantastic. In the New Testament, we hear that Jesus came to dwell in the midst of his people. That is, God, the word incarnate dwelt among us. So what is meant then by this next phrase? What does it mean that Jesus is the image of the invisible God? Well, it means this. We know that a picture is worth a thousand words. And so too, we have a far better way of knowing God through Jesus Christ. You know, there would be a big difference if I were just to try to describe the Mona Lisa to you. Her hair being brownish, reddish, coming down to about her shoulders and her her closed smile and her eyes that are quite peculiar in my opinion and the shape of her nose. I could explain that to you or I could save myself some words and show you a picture of her. So, too, here we have the likeness of God in Jesus Christ. This word image, it's the same word Jesus used in Matthew 20 when he said, Whose likeness, an inscription is on these, holding up a, a coin, and it would have been Caesar's face. They would have seen Caesar. Imprinted on that coin. And so too, as we look at Jesus Christ, what we see is the image of God who is otherwise invisible. So recall what Moses asked the Lord in Exodus 33 when he said, Lord, show me your glory. John 1 picks up and says that this word, the word that has revealed who God is to his people, this revelation of God is no longer only in words, but instead the word, it became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is incredible. So let me, let me just lay out three implications of what it is that John is saying, what it means for Paul as he describes Jesus being the image of the invisible God. First of all, if we have seen Jesus Christ, then we have seen God. This is, this is a mystery. This is incredible. You see, any one of us can, we bear the, the, the resemblance to our parents, right? Just yesterday, my wife sent me a picture of our son, and, and I was like, this looks like you, Sarah. This looks like her. And I'll, I won't put the picture up, but <laughs> they look side by side. You're like, yeah, that's definitely her son. And so it is. I see of your own kids that are around here as well you all look kind of like your parents and, and, and the adults in here who I haven't met your parents, you look like your parents too to some degree, I imagine. But what we cannot say is this, that if you have seen me, you have seen my dad. You can't say that. But what Jesus says is this very thing, that if we have seen Jesus, then we have seen the father. Listen to how he said it in John 14. Philip said to him, Lord Show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Hebrews 1 puts it this way. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed as the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Do you want to see God's glory like Moses? We are to look to Christ. It's like the the rays of a sun, he says here. It is the, the radiance of his nature. What does it mean? It's, you can't see the sun. You can't look at the sun, not with the naked eye. But what you can see is the rays emanating from it. And further than that, everything we see under a bright, sunny day is made far more clear and vivid and saturated because the sun is shining. And so too, he says, it's, it's the exact imprint of his nature, It's like the mark left in hot wax after a signet ring presses into that wax and you might not see the ring itself, but if you see the seal with that signet ring pressed into it, you know what the ring looks like. That signet is impressed into that wax. And so it is, if we have seen Christ, we have seen God. And if that's not important enough, you'll see it becomes very important because of the next point. If we see Jesus Christ, then we are saved. By seeing here, I mean something more than simply seeing, but also with it, knowing. I had uh, an acquaintance in college who was dating a girl that he met online that he never saw, that he never talked to, but via text and emails and the sort. He did not know who she was. And so too, if we do not see Jesus Christ, how then can we possibly know God? And I mean, know him intimately. See, if we see Jesus Christ, we are saved because if we see Jesus Christ, we know God. Again, this isn't my words. This is Jesus's words. John 14, once again, he said, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I go, you may be also. And you also know the way, the, where I am going. And then Thomas, once again, Thomas is always asking questions. Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known the Father. And from now on, you do know him. Why? Because you've seen Jesus. Because you've seen him. Seeing God through Christ makes it so that we can know him. And if we know him, then we are saved. And so if we have seen Christ, then we are saved. Jesus to uh, the Last implication that I want to point out. As we see Jesus Christ, we will be sanctified. That word sanctified simply means we will be changed from one degree of glory to the next, being made more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. To put it this way, we become what we behold. That's what discipleship is, right? As we get close to other people who are following Jesus, we imitate them as they imitate Christ. We become what we behold, but this isn't just true in the Christian life. This is true in life in general. You know how it is, parents, if you've watched a movie and then you show it to your kids and all of a sudden you start to notice the things that you never saw before because your kids are watching it. It's no secret that my son loves Toy Story and I didn't realize some of the kind of rude language that you see throughout that movie. And it wasn't until my son started punching the dog and calling him something that I won't say here and now that I realized, yeah, we really do become what we behold. Because there's a scene in the movie where Woody is kicking a dog and calling him not-so-nice names. We become what we behold. And so, too, if we look at Jesus Christ, we will become like him. 2 Corinthians 3 18, Paul says, And we all, with unfailed faith, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And again, in this very same letter, Colossians 3, he says, We've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And all the while, some of us wonder why we're making so little progress in the Christian life, not looking very different, when all the while what we are looking at is not Jesus Christ, but we just binge Netflix and whatever else is on TV and spend most of our time with other people who are not building us up to make us follow Christ and imitate them as they imitate Christ. You want to be changed? Look at Jesus Christ and he will change you. Which leads us to a... Curious question. If Jesus is the image of the invisible God as he is, how then can we see him if he is no longer with us? He's been ascended, he's the right hand of the Father, and he has not been here on the earth for 2,000 years. And yet, if you're a keen listener, you'll pick up on the error in that question, in that statement. For though he is with the Father, He is also with us. He told us that he will never leave us or forsake us. Even Paul, in his darkest hour, you should remember when we were going through 2 Timothy, he said Jesus Christ was with him. And so in this sense, we are not without the help of seeing Christ. It's the first misassumption that we don't see. Furthermore, I want to point out that what we need to see Jesus is not simply Physical sight, that is, eyes to see him. Oftentimes you hear this with people who are struggling in their faith. If I could just see Jesus with my eyes, then I would believe. Well, that didn't work in the New Testament when Jesus was actually walking among men, did it? Those who saw Jesus with their eyes and yet rejected him were not benefited in any way by having seen him. They saw God's mercy displayed in Jesus Christ when he ate with sinners and tax collectors. And yet what they did not see was the mercy of God on display, but instead they called him a glutton and a drunkard. They saw God's authority in Christ when he cast out demons by their legion, but what they didn't see was the power of God on display. But instead what they said was he was doing this through the power of demons. Demons. And they saw God's love displayed when Jesus hung there upon the cross, the clearest display of his glory. But what they did not see was his love, but instead they mocked him and spat upon him. Seeing Jesus with our physical eyes would not benefit us if we do not recognize, like Peter, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, the image of the invisible God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. We do not need simply physical eyes to see him, but what do we need? We need the eyes of faith. This is the very problem that Thomas once again struggled with. That's why we call him Doubting Thomas. He wanted to see Jesus the risen Jesus, with his eyes. And yet, if he wouldn't have seen him and if he couldn't touch him with his hands, then he said, I would not believe. And yet those who are blessed are not those who see with their eyes, but believe with their hearts. It is once again the blind man who actually finally recognize Jesus and Matthew, who cry out and rightly recognize Jesus as the son of David, though they did not have physical eyes to see. Oh, they had spiritual sight that everyone else was missing. So too, the church, those who believe in Christ, they believe in him, why? Because they have seen him, the image of the invisible God in Christ Jesus. And this comes not with, with physical eyes of seeing, but this comes by the spirit. Once again, this is 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. By the way, they never saw Jesus in the flesh. And neither did the Galatians, and yet it didn't keep Paul from saying, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And so it could be said of us today just as well, those who have eyes to see, could be said just the same, that it was before our own eyes that Jesus Christ is publicly portrayed as crucified. And how does this happen? But through hearing the gospel. I don't think I could say it better, so I'm just gonna rip off Spurgeon and quote him here. But I did change it a little bit. I I have some words I inserted here so it would be more fitting for us today. So I I wanna read this. My dear friends, Do not say that Christ died on Calvary, that is some thousands of miles off. I know that he did, but what matters is not as to where he died in its locality. He loved you and gave himself for you. Let it be to you as though he were crucified here in Vancouver, Washington, and as though his cross were in the middle of our church. Oh, some will say, but he died 2,000 years ago. I know he did but the efficacy of his death is a thing of today. He died into sins once, and that once pours the splendor of its efficacy down to all the ages. And the thing for you to do is to feel as if you saw him dying now, on the tree now, standing immediately at the foot of the cross, looking up and seeing him looking down from you on that cross and saying, I did all this for thee. Cannot you ask the Lord to make it as vivid to you as this? End quote. Do you wanna see God? Do you wanna see his glory? Do you want to know him and be known by him? And do you wanna be changed by him from one degree of glory to the next until you are glorified and made perfect? And look at Jesus Christ, for he is the image of the invisible God. See him forgive the sins of those who come to him. And as you do so, you're going to make a decision. Like those who came before, you'll either see that he is the son of God who came to forgive sins, or you will be blind and say he is simply a drunk See his power displayed in transforming sinners and making them a new creation. And then again, you will need to make a decision as to where that power comes from. Does this come from Satan? Or is he filled with the very power and authority of God? And see him innocently dying on the cross. And you too, like the criminals on his left and on his right, will need to make a decision. Either you will mock him Stick your tongue out at him and spit at him or you will shut your mouth and confess that he is God. We cannot simply have Jesus as a moral teacher. He is either a lunatic or he is Lord. So may the spirit of God give us all eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we need your spirit, even now, to make the the word become alive in our heart so that we might see Christ as we ought to see him, not as prominent, but as preeminent. Lord, let us see the glory of Christ. Let us see him for all he is, cause for our minds to be able to comprehend things about him that we could not see apart from your help. And Lord, even for those who have yet to see him, I pray that you would open their eyes. Lord, do all this and be glorified, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together. last week